try to make the understatement of the evening, let me say that not everything has yet been said. <laughs> and uh, there, is, there is one question, a page and a little bit long, and it's on yellow paper. That's no, no uh, significance, I take it. But I would like to read that and then ask Dr. DeGraff to answer it. The reason I do so is that I think that there should be no misunderstanding of what may be possible misunderstanding. To Dr. DeGraff, in the beginning of your lecture, you maintained against the criticism of Dr. Young that Doyabert's non-theoretical and theoretical distinction was ultimately founded in scriptural exegesis. Toward the end of your lecture, you were sure that scripture should not and could not be used in this way. Murray's approach, therefore, is wrong. You seem to want to eat your cake and have it too. Does the Bible, or does it not, have a logically formulatable and theoretically understandable doctrine of the heart which has direct theoretical explication, uh, no, application, I think, to the structure of Christian philosophy? If it does, then Murray is right. If not, then Ritterboss is right. Who's right? <laughs> I think the first point is indeed a misunderstanding. Uh, I, I wanted to make the point that Neuwirth's distinction does not hinge on his particular formulation of how abstracting is possible, this Gegenstand relation. But that this whole distinction has a much deeper source, namely in his anthropology, which basically goes back to what scripture testifies and teaches us about the heart and the centrality <coughs> of religion. And if you take my remarks as such, then I'm not trying to eat my cake and still have some left over. Uh, because as von Bayernsdorf brought up so clearly, I think, in his dissertation on the word heart in scripture, unless you can commit yourself and are in the grip of this scriptural teaching of the centrality of religion, as Dr. Hansil spoke of it a minute ago, that whatever you do then is directed by the commitment of your heart to see that in the very words and text of Scripture does not depend upon theoretical, theological exegesis. Many have exegeted the scripture and have not seen this because they were in the grip of an other conviction with regard to the place of religion and the heart. And although now this has become more common knowledge, before von Meyenfeld certainly had a hard time finding people that would set this forth. 
Um, the other question: Does the Bible, uh, does the Bible, or doesn't not have a logically formulatable and theoretically understandable doctrine of the heart? Again, I would distinguish there between what is implicit, latent in Scripture, this analytical moment, integral part of all these passages where the heart is used, and the theologians abstracting from all these places and clarifying this logically. Scripture itself does not present in any way such a theoretically formulated doctrine of the heart. But the theologian indeed can abstract that from the scripture in his theoretical exegesis. And I think that is an important distinction. The scripture does not teach an anthropology, a theoretical view of man, but there is a view of man, a religious view presented to us in the concrete passages. Uh, it shows too, for example, in the, if you, if you permit me to say that, in the theoretically imprecise way that the word heart is used in all the many passages in many different meanings. Uh, certainly it is not always used in that central sense. I think that to me illustrates the, the non-theoretical way in which Scripture talks and addresses us speaks to us. That would be my answer to that. I said that we would have more participation from the floor. If there is somebody at this point who would like to pursue this thought, and that uh, Dr. DeGraff has said, now is the time. Yes? Please stand. This is directly related to that uh, answer. It seems uh, that your approach could be summarized as follows. Uh, on the one hand, you say that Scripture is uh, more than uh, the logical relations which, for instance, are seen by John Murray. Uh, and perhaps it even has a, a more... Uh, more primary importance, uh, say the doxological importance of the passage is uh, more primary than the, uh, or is primary to the uh, logical moment of the passage. But on the other hand, you say the Bible is not reducible to proposition uh, and logical relations. But now, is it not more consistent with the former statement uh, that uh, the Bible is not only, or it's not primarily logical, isn't it more consistent to say that the Bible has a logical aspect 
which logical aspect uh, makes the Bible amenable to propositional formulation, and hence the existence of systematic theology. That's precisely what I said this afternoon. Scripture has this logical side to it, but in an integrated fashion. It is not characterized by analytical aspects. That's one moment of which, like you just said, the theologians can draw out, can focus upon, which I then would call abstracting from the fullness of Scripture. But then on the basis of that answer, is it possible then for the Bible to contain information uh, which we may abstract, which would tell us about the Ordo Salutis? Which might, for instance, be found in John 8:28-30. Yes, but I think then immediately this question would come again that Dr. Newton brought up: What kind of order are we talking about? Again, is that an order of faith? And I think you have to describe it differently than in saying, using the words, a logical, causal, however this formulation went. Uh, relationship. But for instance, uh, take Jesus' words, unless uh, uh, a man cannot come unto me unless the Father draw him. Mm -hmm. Now, how are we supposed to understand that? I mean, can we understand that at all? I would be very willing to talk there about uh, cause and see the one as coming before the other, but it makes no sense at all to me to use the word logical primacy there. Oh, I, I see I see your point there, but I have never been uh, persuaded that uh, that was exactly John Murray's approach and his exegesis that he wanted to talk about logical priority uh, in the sense of that is that is the sum total of what the passage is saying. I mean, it made us maybe I'll say it's correct about what Murray yeah. was actually saying. I dare say that there will be a keen studying of those two commentaries from, uh, from here on in for some while. Now, there is a question that I would like to direct to Dr. Newton, and uh, he could give a short, a short uh, answer to this. <laughs> in his appeal to the primacy of commitment to a ground motive in exegesis, is Joyeuvert saying any more than has been said in traditional dogmatics through the doctrine of the internal testimony of the Spirit and or the common assertion in theology of the necessity of regeneration by the Holy Spirit prior to the true understanding of the Word of God? This is one of those that was thought out while he was having his, uh, what was it, uh, broiled uh, uh, flounder at the, at the restaurant. <laughs> and so it, it's tight, but it's all there. It's, uh, I'm, I'm just afraid that there's been a case of mistaken identity here because I didn't have broiled flounder at the restaurant. I had fried chicken. <laughs> and so, if I may, 
I should like also to beg your indulgence to speak more than a minute and a half. Well, two minutes then. No more than that. <laughs> um, this matter, of course, I think is of the mo of the essence for our understanding. I, my last, other remarks, I stop short. Just at this point, what is the religious ground motive? Now, the form of the question is, does this do any more really than has been done in our Reformed theology when we speak then of the necessity of regeneration, uh, we could say the illumination of the Spirit, and so forth and so on. I think certainly it is quite analogous uh, to these things. I think that it certainly involves uh, what is involved here. I think, however, that in the idea of the ground motive, that you have something somewhat different. I think that you have something like this, that you, if you speak of regeneration, let us say, you are speaking of a change at the very center of man's existence. Whether you talk about that as a heart or whatever it is, it is a change which is by the activity of the Holy Spirit which turns a man around and opens his eyes, illumines him, and so on and so on. It is a change at the very center of his being. But now the question of the ground motive, it seems to me, is this. Does one not only uh, live in this fashion, is he not only changed in this fashion, but is there a fundamental structuration? Is there a fundamental structuration, let us say, that we in our hearts are gripped by the revelation of God as it speaks to us that he is the sovereign creator? that we are his creatures placed at the very center of the creation with the dominion over the creature, that we have to subdue this earth and so on, but man then disobeyed, he forsook, and in his covenant relationship he then has become subject to idols, he's been subject to the evil power instead of, the, of God himself, that Jesus Christ comes into the world as the truth and so on and changes us at our very heart. Is there a structure in terms of which we understand things? Now let me give you an illustration of a wrong type of structure that I was uh, in when I was a younger man uh, uh, struggling to become a Calvinist because it was a struggle. I wasn't born a, a covenant child in, in your sense of the word or I wasn't uh, a Calvinist from birth or brought up in the catechism or anything like that. I was brought up uh, partly as a modernist, and I was brought up also as an evangelical, and the conflict uh, in those, between those two, they warred at each other, and I had uh, to be, it was a great fight for me to become a Calvinist. But the thing is, I had a wrong worldview. I believed in a dualistic worldview. I believed then that somehow uh, the Christian my Christian faith was a matter of my own inner inclination. And it, it was only when I read Mason that I began to see the true Christian faith is involving a, uh, a history of God's revelation and so forth, and that it was taken out of my mere subjective life, 
with all of the ups and downs that evangelicals have because they have subjectivized the word of God uh, and they subjectivize their understanding of the Christian faith and they don't understand the great broad uh, aspects uh, that we know in the creation and fall and redemption, the whole history of God's revelation. I was grasped, I think, by a different, a more biblical ground motive, away from a dualistic one, which is characteristic of the sectarian group, a dualism of nature and grace, a, a, a nominalistic dualism, you might say, over into a position that is more, um, uh, which is Calvinistic. Now, what is the nature of this thing? Can we simply get it? That is the question that comes again and again. Can we simply get this by simply coming to the scriptures, exegeting the scriptures in a theoretical fashion? The answer of the cosmonomic idea of philosophy, and I have also accepted this position long before I studied with Doriverk, uh, the thing is, the answer is a no. It can't. Because if we come to the scriptures exegeting, we might exegete them like Bultmann does. We might have a false uh, view. We might have a false dichotomy. But as we come to the scriptures, indeed, we come with discrimination. And here I find it uh, difficult to agree with what Dr. Ventil was saying just a little while ago because of this. I do not think that this philosophy puts the uh, position just the way he put it. He seems to indicate that if we have the naive view that we don't operate with concepts or that we do not discriminate, that we really can't talk with each other. Well, that is not the position that I hold and if anyone of this group holds it, then I would have to be informed about the fact. Uh, and then uh, we discriminate, we use concepts even in our talking as we talk in a naive fashion. We can talk with each other, but these are concepts which then are of a concrete character. They're concepts like we use a table, chair, and so forth. I speak of God and God's ordaining, I speak of God's creating, I speak of all these things, they are concepts, but they are not strictly theoretical, theological concepts in the sense that I was expounding here just a little while ago. So we can talk about them and, and so forth. And then uh, the uh, thing is also, but what is the relationship even between these concepts and the ground motive. The idea is then that the ground motive grasps us in the very center of our being. It is a structuration. It is not simply a, a change in our heart in a subjective sense, you might say, in the sense that this philosophy used the word subjective, a change, let's say, in the actual state of our being from regenerate to, uh, unregenerate to regenerate, an illumination from darkness to light and so forth but there is living in a community in which there is a structuration so that I see things in a Christian worldview and other people see them in a different type of worldview Wiltman is such and so forth well now if that be the case also obviously I cannot get it simply 
by any exegesis in a theoretical sense of the scripture, which means that I would have uh, uh, principles of exegesis because these principles of exegesis would be dominated by my ground motive. That I have then, I come to the scriptures uh, then uh, analyzing them with uh, certain prolegomena principles because these are all dominated by the particular worldview which I have. Now that doesn't mean that I, of course, uh, can uh, then understand what God says without listening to what God says. I have to listen to what God says. God says that we're all sinners. God says that we need a Savior, Jesus Christ. I have to listen. And in order to do that, I have to discriminate. In order to do that, I have to understand something that involves propositional revelation. Certainly it does. God then causes me to discriminate. He discriminates for me through the power of his Holy Spirit, for one thing. But the question is, as Dr. DeHoffa says, is it simply a matter of proposition? Uh, during the uh, Clark controversy, I remember uh, Mr. Murray uh, willing to say that there was a standing in the truth, that there is then uh, a truth which is not simply propositional. And I think he's right. Not simply propositional. That doesn't mean that there's no discrimination in it, that propositions are not related to it, but it is not simply of the nature of propositions. And so that we could say that you could string out the whole meaning of, of the scriptures in all sorts and exhaustive meaning in a series of propositions. Now, I don't believe the scriptures are that. That seems to me to be an intellectualization of the scriptures, the most dangerous intellectualization of the scriptures, something that could lead one into a position where he thinks then that he has been able to really follow what the scriptures say and what they mean, follow them in his heart, if he can simply say these propositions. That's what it tends to lead into. Now, I know that none of you will hold uh, that that ought to be the case. You're not that much intellectualistic. Uh, and I don't want to call anyone an intellectualist. But on the other hand, the thing is that I think this is the type of thing that just can lead into if we would come to the position that we say that the whole meaning of the scriptures in its deepest sense is simply expressible and can be exhausted in proposition. Dr. Zerkoff doesn't want to say that. I wouldn't want to say that. I would say that we are standing in the truth when we are grasped by God in his revelation and that then obviously this involves pro propositions, it involves God speaking to us and our listening, but it cannot simply be exhausted in any logical sense. Now, uh, we, Dr. Ventil was saying that he has great, uh, he is somewhat distressed by the distinction between the naive and the theoretical. Uh, I must say this, I appreciate very, very much the entire driving force of Dr. Ventil's position. He has tried to have a reformational approach. He has tried then, and he is constantly saying, and I think that this is a very wonderful thing, and I think that we must all do this, that we must be progressive in the regard of the reform phase and not regressive. And uh, I've been reading a review uh, of his that is going to be published soon in the journal. He insists on this. He insists on this in his criticisms of Dorever. And I think we must continually do this, that we must constantly 
seek to find a way to avoid any neutral approach. We must try, we must be ready, even as he has done this evening, to discuss the distinction between naive and theoretical, between states of affairs, and so on and so on. We must be ready to discuss these matters. We must seek to drive out any vestiges of autonomy. We must seek to drive out any vestiges of neutrality wherever they may come up in this distinction or others. But I must be instructed if this naive theoretical distinction per se means precisely what Dr. Mitchell has indicated that it does. Because as I mentioned, uh, certainly the naive does not mean that we can't talk with each other, that it cuts the ground out from under witnessing. Let's, let's say, me genoito. God forbid that we should ever say anything like that. Furthermore, let us not say that any idea of theory means that we are simply contemplating without any existential involvement. Again, me genoito. God forbid that we should say anything like that. In fact, the whole point is that our theoretical thinking itself has an inward tendency to reflect back on what we are as men in our relation, in our covenant relationship with God. And whether Doivet is right in many respects, I'm not going to defend him uh, in every respect. I refuse to canonize, as I've told uh, again and again to my classes, this philosophy. But I know this for a certainty, that he says that no matter what we do, we are constantly then reflecting back upon what we are in our relationship with God, in our covenant relationship with God, and so that if we understand what existential means in this sense, which has nothing to do with existentialism, then we are involved with our whole self, whether we are theorizing or whether we're milking cows. Now, I've never milked a cow. I've watched them being milked. Uh, I was one of these unfortunates who was not brought up in the farm, uh, but I was brought up in, in the city with sidewalks and all that sort of thing, which, of course, makes me a second-class citizen, uh, but I'm perfectly happy to be one. I managed to survive anyway. But in any case, and then uh, let me also say this. Uh, again, I'm willing to be instructed, but it doesn't seem to me that this naive and theoretical distinction involves what uh, Berkauer and some others have been trying to do or have been doing. I remember one time in a uh, gathering at the Free University in a seminar how uh, that Berkauer made to me what was a very astounding statement. He said that the empty tomb was not included in the event of the resurrection. I immediately took issue with him, and uh, we had quite a warm discussion. Quite a warm discussion. Uh, we find also that there is some tendencies, I think, uh, in the Netherlands to fall into some kind of a nature grace scheme. I find that there is some tendency to fall into a Geschichte history distinction but I cannot see for the life of me that this can be reduced to or be brought back simply to a distinction that I've accepted for a long time, I think comes from Kuiper, is held by persons who want to have nothing to do with the nature of grace or uh, with the Geschichte history distinction, namely that of naive experience and theoretical thought. 
Now what then is the trouble? There are persons who are also saying that the number of God's elect is not closed and so forth. Uh, Barakar put it this way, well, uh, the, um, uh, the empty tomb was not a part of the event of the resurrection because the disciples were not simply interested in empty tombs. Of course they weren't. They weren't interested in empty tombs in general. But my position is, and has been, and I teach it in evidences, that the event of the resurrection cannot, of course, be exhausted in anything that is a matter of our sight. That then is simply phenomenal, in this sense, that I could simply see it. In other words, you could see the empty tomb and still disbelieve in the resurrection. And that's, of course, what Dr. Vintil has been teaching for years, and I agree with him 100%, that there are no brute facts. On the other hand, the empty tomb is part of the revelational event. And I think from what I've read of Dorivert, in his view of the individuality structure, that he insists on the same thing. And although I don't know much about the actual details of it, it seems to me that he ought to disagree with such a statement as Barakawa made. And I think he ought to disagree with any uh, geschichte history distinction, whereas I pointed out earlier, uh, as in the I-Thou-I-It uh, relationship in Martin Buber, there is a setting forth of the area of freedom over against discrimination, over against numerics, over against uh, ordinary history, over against this, over against that. We don't do that. We can't do that. We can't do that from an integral theoretical position which is ruled by the ground motive of the Christian faith. And I think we must then, in other words, we must then try to be progressive. We must then, as Dr. Ventil has done, we must move forward. We must try to get out that demon of neutrality. And we have to learn from each other. I want to learn from my associates, I want to learn as much as I can, and I'm willing to listen at any time. But on the other hand, I am also afraid that if we then can perhaps uh, not see things as well, perhaps, in terms of the actual distinctions as they are made and as they are intended by the person, see the complexity of the situation, I think that is a rather uh, dangerous thing. Let us then get a nature uh, grace, uh, phenomenal, noumenal. Let us get nature freedom. Uh, let us get these things out of the way. Let us return then to a truly biblical motive, which will give us, as Dorieberg himself puts it, a radical and integral view of the creation that we see everything in terms of God's revelation and its meaning for the entire uh, expanse of our experience. Thank you very much. Did you all hear the question? The question is, oh, I got it down here. 
Well, I've rephrased it a little bit. All right. So <laughs> uh, we're now talking about the distinction, and as Dr. Newton uh, says, a validity, a valid distinction between naive and theoretical thought. My question is, can the Reformed doctrine of Scripture, uh, particularly as set forth by Warfield, be reconciled with this naive theoretical distinction which has been brought to our attention this afternoon or spoken of at such great length? I can say two sentences on that. In the first place, I refuse to make any distinction, any philosophical distinction, equal with scripture and so I'm quite willing to take sort of a hands-off attitude even though I think it's a valuable distinction with respect to theoretical and naive if I'm proved wrong I'll be happy for it number two I've never had any trouble relating a complete view of the authority of scripture to the idea of naive experience all it has to do is the type of concept which is used in the scripture which does not have these characteristics of the theoretical and there's one thing of course that Kuiper and so forth have been trying to do they've been trying to get away from the hegemony of the theologian over the simple believer and so that person can argue uh, over milking cows and so forth and they can argue about these things and they're not at the beck and call of synod and they're not at the beck and call of the theologian now I want to preserve that and, and it seems to my befuddled mind everyone is uh, willing to call himself befuddled I am quite also willing to call myself befuddled to my befuddled imagination at least that if we deny this distinction it seems to me to come from Kuiper that we are right in the realm, if we think of this as only a matter of degree, I think that we are in danger of having the theologian lord it over the simple believer. And, and at least that's one of the religious things that I've, I've been uh, trying to avoid. Yes, can you please stand? I'd like to ask uh, either Dr. Newton and Dr. Kraft, in relationship to this distinction between naive and theoretical, is there anything definite which can be said about naive experience except that it is not theoretical in nature? I think I've tried to say a whole lot about what it is like Infulness, wholeness, concreteness, as I referred to it this afternoon. Uh, if you were asking beyond that, I would not know how to answer your question. Do you want to pursue that some more? If so, let's be as concrete as possible. Yes, pin them down. <laughs> okay. uh, such men as though you were at Berkauer and um, also Ritterboss have had a great deal of hesitancy to apply the word inerrancy to scripture as we have been accustomed to doing in the Reformed tradition. Is there something within the distinction that is made by the Doewerdian philosophy that points towards uh, getting away from this notion of inerrancy? How would you rephrase that? This is particularly 
directed towards Dr. DeGraff and perhaps Dr. Newton as well. I'd like somebody else to get in this too. I'm I see no connection. I fail to see that, that this distinction would have direct bearing on that matter. And I would think you must also distinguish rather carefully, it seems to me, at this point between Doyle and his associates and Burkhauer. I think that's something that hurts to say that because previously I think there was a great deal of congeniality and I think even some years back Doyeritz was still under the impression that Burkhauer was very much with him, working in the same line. I think it has become more and more clear, as Dr. Pantil indicated, which I would very much follow uh, what he said, that a sharp distinction is coming to the fore. So much so that I can think of no two people that are more sharply opposed at this point perhaps than say Burkhauer and Zydema on Karl Barth for example and Meckes and some of Burkhauer's students uh, and I think uh, the fact that these theologians have not come out on that point so clearly as you wonder about that uh, that must be analyzed and seen against its own background and things cannot be associated with uh, Doiver's distinction of naive and theoretical. Alright, uh, I might like yes, uh, to Young. inject a comment or two here. I'm inclined to agree that the distinction, naive and theoretical, in itself has no uh, direct uh, implication with regard uh, to uh, the uh, matter of uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. For one thing, there are enough problems involved in getting clear just what is involved in this naive uh, theoretical distinction that until the distinction is uh, uh, very uh, uh, much sharpened, uh, it's hardly possible to get any very definite uh, results out of it. But what I am leery about is the faith aspect in this matter. And what I'm afraid about in the faith aspect, uh, I hinted at in my paper uh, today, this suggests that the theologian comes to the Bible. But there may be a lot in the Bible that's irrelevant to uh, uh, what the theologian is really vitally concerned about. Uh, but there's just a certain aspect, you see, the faith aspect. The aspect in which uh, the uh, theologian as a believer is existentially grasped. Now, this is where the Word of God speaks to it. Now, you see, I'm very much afraid that this faith aspect idea readily lends itself to a development along the existentialistic neo-Orthodox line. 
when Doyabaird proceeds to make some concrete applications of it. It may be, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to uh, come here now as an exegete of Genesis 1, but nonetheless, when the kind of application is made that uh, we don't want to look at Genesis 1 as telling us anything about astronomy or as telling us anything about geology, but we want to look at the days of creation only in terms of the faith aspect. And uh, here we get, uh, we get up into some aspect outside of ordinary literal chronology completely. Ah, uh, I don't think this is a good way of uh, approaching exegy. I think it's much better to have some objective exegetical uh, uh, criteria. And uh, notwithstanding, uh, uh, my dear friend Knudsen's uh, remarks about exegesis uh, being dominated, or the criteria of exegesis being dominated by ground motives, I'm inclined to think that there are some objective standards that can be used in interpreting the language of a text. And uh, there are some checks, uh, there are some checks upon ground motives and all the rest of these subjective factors that any scientific uh, uh, workers dealing with linguistic stuff and the biblical exegesis as well as others ought to be always uh, respectful towards. After all, our exegesis isn't only theological exegesis, it's grammatical, historical exegesis as well as theological. Well, uh, now, uh, you see, this is the kind of thing which does disturb me and which I think gives your question a certain amount of an edge. Chairman, may I see one comment? Uh, let me, the early comments of Dr. Young, I've been saying the same thing for the last 11 years. And, but I'm also worried about certain possibilities connected with the physical aspects. We've got to be very, very careful. And that, it seems to me, as I've said to Dr. Ventil from time to time also, I think there's where we've got to watch, not simply in this naive but theoretical speech. Yes, Dr. DeGrasse, uh, I would like to turn tables just a minute yet and ask this question of Dr. Young. What guarantee is there that your objective standards and, say, criterion, your use, for example, of modal logic, what guarantee is there that that tool that you would use, that method and approach, would not distort the scriptures either? would not, say, intellectualize it or rationalize it. I, I could argue on that same basis. Well, I'll give you an example with regard to modal logic. Modal logic can be a check on a person. It was on me when I was uh, writing uh, uh, the uh, uh, last uh, chapter of the theory uh, book. Uh, it occurred to me that I had a nice knockdown ontological proof for the existence of God, and it seemed to me that I could even prove that if it is necessary that uh, something uh, exists, then it follows that there is something that necessarily exists. But then I said, let me just put this, let me just put this into uh, you know, symbolic notation. 
and uh, attacked it. And since the notion of necessity was here, it's modal. Of course, it's a bit complicated because existence is combined with necessity in it. Well, well, let's just put it. Let's just put it in a symbolic form and test it. Well, I put it in symbolic form and uh, 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 applied a test or so uh, to the thing, and it turned out that my argument was formally invalid. So I had to write half a dozen pages of obscure metaphysics instead of uh, a, uh, <laughs> instead of having a nice knockdown solution. Well, <laughs> you think you can get, you can be fair. You can, uh, something like, if it's, it looks almost intuitively certain, it looks self-evident, if, uh, if something has to exist, then there must be something uh, that exists. Uh, there's something that must exist necessarily. Uh, you think you have an intuition, you see the one follows from the other, but then you, uh, use, the, you use the logical tests, and uh, uh, you're more careful about what you put in print. Uh, so uh, I say this is a kind of uh, uh, this sort of thing uh, uh, can be a kind of check. It can keep you uh, from uh, uh, indulging in arguments that can uh, be shown uh, later on uh, to be uh, fallacious. Uh, it, uh, it doesn't keep you, and it probably hasn't kept me from inventing more complicated fallacious arguments afterwards. <laughs> but uh, uh, there's no infallible. I mean, there's no infallible guarantee against going astray. Uh, but you do want checks when you're arguing an abstract uh, thing of this sort. It's uh, good to have uh, a, a formal check uh, in logic. Checks when you're arguing an abstract uh, thing of this sort. It's uh, good to have uh, a, a formal check uh, in logic. When you're dealing with exegesis, it's good to have philological and other appropriate uh, checks. Uh, uh, to set limits upon uh, the scope of one's uh, fantasy and imagination. Uh, the, the dialogue is just starting. You'll hold off a minute. I think that that uh, Dr. DeGraff should pursue that a minute. I don't think you answered his question. I must ask one further question, namely about the use of modal logic. Perhaps in theology, that must be accounted for too. Is that method, is it merely a method, neutral? Uh, that question seems to me is prior to making use of it, and I would like you to say what about that? Why is that any better guarantee, say, than Doiver's formulation of the central prosecution in his ground model? Well, the employment of a uh, modal test is as much and as little neutral as the employment of an old-fashioned syllogistic text uh, for a uh, syllogistic argument. In a sense, uh, one's dealing with a technique, and in the respect in which a technique can be called neutral, then uh, uh, modal logic is just as neutral as uh, old-fashioned uh, Aristotelian syllogistic. On the other hand, if you're talking about uh, the theory, you're talking about the theory of logic and the interpretation of the meaning of logic, if you're talking about the end and the purpose for which uh, arguments are being used, uh, of course, uh, you're not dealing with something that's new. Dr. Ventil, you would like to... Well, I'd like to express the agreement with Dr. Graff and Dr. Knudsen 
I wish Dr. Young hadn't written that last chapter in his book the way he did. Because <laughs> there everything just went wrong. Because there he follows Dr. Clark in his bad apologetics. Oh, I'm worse than Dr. Clark. Right. Dr. Clark will be on your side against me. <laughs> the point being, he's talking about things as necessity, the most basic concepts of theology and in philosophy. Now, a Christian should take them from the scripture, as Dr. Clark does. Only that is possible, which God says will happen. And then if you try to talk about modal logic and try to determine what is possible, then you're putting possible above, above God. And then you're trying to prove God's existence. You already know what being is, what cause is, what substance is, what this is, and you actually don't know anything of anything of sort except on the presupposition that the scripture, what it says about God and his plan is true. So, I wish you hadn't written the last chapter, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, all right. Yeah, I right that's fine. But, Dr. Mansell, don't you feel that your criticism of Dr. Young is much more radical than is Dr. DeGraff? Dr. DeGraff has simply asked, well, you're, not, you're just as bad as I am. But you, it seems to me that what you have said uh, is a reaction to both of these things. Well, that's I mean, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. DeGraff, I think you've got to uh, answer that, Yes. Yes, uh, I think I wanted to be just as radical, but I was trying to be, say it nicely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think this is great up here, but let's have some more uh, feedback. All right, uh, Noel, you have your hand up. Dr. I'd like to know how you can be sure that the use of the Doyaverdian motif will not lead to a distortion of scripture. <coughs> I think that is indeed the most basic question you can ask and ultimately I think there is no other answer to that than the certainty and the assurance of my faith in the word of God and I would think that there is no other certainty in this life then that trust and commitment to the word that God has revealed it. I think no one can find an other standard. That's why I have been speaking like this. Does the use of modal logic, for example, guarantee us and give us any more of a kind of an objective standard we can go by? apart from this religious commitment of our hearts to the word of God I don't think there is and that's why I spoke to uh, at some point in my speech this afternoon ultimately we all must make a stand there in our hearts for which we are eternally responsible with this question about 
be arising and where you take your starting point that concerns the truth, ultimate truth. And there is no other stand simply than that. Mr. K? Yeah. All right. Dr. Graff, do you think then that it's theoretically possible to refute this, the philosophy of Doyerbeard by an appeal to texts of Scripture? Are you willing to grant that as a theoretical possibility? Yes. A faith appeal to Scripture, certainly. There is this, however. The only ultimate validity this philosophy has is as it refers back concentrically to the Word of God. Everything else in it has to be relative to that. Only in this direction. And I so, uh, it's expressed itself in my interruptions on that point, too. Uh, the whole philosophy, the way it has been theoretically worked out, is a fallible human conception, reflection of what they seen. That could be overthrown and changed or added to in 50 years. Huh? And I think we must all endorse all right, so, yes, along <coughs> this same line, I know that uh, Dr. Newton has brought to our attention that Goyeser criticizes the phenomenological movement uh, in this question that uh, maybe a similarity of a ground motive is intentional relatedness is not a pre-theoretical, but as a post-theoretical concept, something that has been concluded after they themselves have gone through the theoretically through the material. Now, on this question of creation, fall, and redemption, I think some of us may be pointing to this, possibly not in the same way that I am, but uh, if, if it is a, pro a product of exegesis, or at least naive discrimination, you would want to separate that apart from anything that would be called post-theoretical. Would that be true? Very much, yes. Then, and related to uh, Mr. Shepard's question, then how do we go about disproving this ground motive, creation, fall, redemption. That would be wonderful. great if we could just prove uh, God's word. Pardon me? That would be wonderful if we could just prove God's word. I think we can do it. No, we gave the possibility that this, mo this ground motive might yes. not be scriptural. Right. Yeah. I think Doyard himself has answered that in, a, in an article. Uh, how you go about disproving it? There is no ultimate theoretical disproof of it. There is only this appeal to scripture. So, in debate with, in an article with a Barthian in the Netherlands, he would say, if you think that this dualism you find everywhere and that you also read in scripture, if you can convince me from scripture that is indeed the basic thrust of the scripture, then I stand convinced, but I can see it. And this is what the scriptures testify to me. And that was ultimately his appeal. And I would see that's where the debate ends. Would not theoretical exegesis so be involved in discussing whether that's scriptural or a non-scriptural ground motive? Yes, I think theoretical exegesis might uh, be helpful there to drive the person back to show how in all what he does he indeed has this fundamental skeptical conception of the scripture namely if you're a Barton conception this sharp dualism and uh, you might by your exegesis from another point of view show how this does violence to it 
but ultimately that theoretical exegesis will not convince the Barthians because here is where he takes his stand. Now, it might make him reconsider and it might be the way that he's brought, say, to a conversion, a change, but ultimately you can't prove it. It no, can I'm be helpful with that. I'm not talking about convincing another man, yeah. but actually, as we talk about it, creation of fall redemption, you're, you are saying that it, that it is a product, this round motive is a product of theoretical exegesis. No, not at all. That's why Sawyer insists on the fact that this formulation, which is merely that, indication of the central thrust of the scripture that this itself can never become the object of theoretical analysis that seems to me yeah. is his insistence so we can evaluate our ground motive by theoretical execution to either check it be willing to revise it I thought you just got to explain that no I'm sorry yeah. alright yes and then Noel you're first it would be proper to say that uh, exegesis uh, speaks to all the sciences. In other words, uh, philosophy does have to deal with scientific exegesis, not in the sense of the fundamental religious motive, but yet it must deal with and respond to and use scientific exegesis. Uh, theology uses it basically in its whole structure. Uh, but what about the other? Uh, like physics, for instance. Now, uh, is it possible to scientifically exegete the scriptures and uh, see that the Bible does say something about physics? Or ethics? I think uh, Dr. Newton brought up this point already a minute ago. Uh, not necessarily theological exegesis, no, but in as much this is truly a religious ground motive, the basic stand one takes of scripture, uh, it should directly be the driving force to direct it for every science. There the physicists and the anthropologists is not dependent upon the theologian for his understanding of scripture. He may be greatly aided by it, he may make use of it, but when it comes to an issue, then he is not dependent upon that theologian's theoretical exegesis of the key words of scripture with regard to man, say, for his formulation of a theoretical anthropology. He himself can take his stand in the scriptures directly, religiously. Uh, that's, uh, I certainly didn't want to say oh. that wasn't what I was trying to say, yeah. but isn't it, is it possible for him taking his stand in scripture, can the scripture give him any information in taking his stand? In other words, uh, is the scientist uh, not at all concerned, uh, say the, uh, the geologist, whether or not there ever was a universal flood? Or is he somehow concerned with what the scriptures say regarding that? Yes, I think the, uh, the geologist is directly concerned with what the scripture 
testifies him and teaches him there as a religious directive that he must struggle with and must be bound by in his scientific endeavors as a geologist but he is not necessarily dependent upon this or that theologian's uh, theoretical scientific formulation of that. He may make great use of it, but that's another matter. You're just trying to uh, indicate the, the uh, you might use a bad word, the autonomy, but the uh, centrality of the word for the centrality of the word and the individuality of the of the person. Uh, that it's, it's the individual geologist who confronts the word of God. He doesn't have to listen to some other theologian. Uh, the idea of community doesn't in here too, but yeah, okay, if we... Already Kuiper talked about the Freiheitserwartenschaft, the freedom of science, and that the scientist is not dependent upon the theologian in this sense. That doesn't mean he may ignore him. No science may ignore any other science. But it is not dependent upon, as Dr. Hoff says, the conclusions of this or that of the other theologian. But every science is dependent upon what the Word of God says. If you read Devonate Witt, for instance, in his the discussion of biology and the paleontology, you will read that he does not believe that science can discover, as science, as a theoretical discipline, about in a sense, the prehistory about uh, the beginnings of man and so forth. We have to listen to what the Bible says. And as far as I know, although I don't know exactly what Doyle would say about it, uh, at least it has the idea he is, he, he is right along in this philosophy. Now, uh, 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 the only thing I would add to Dr. Dukat is that obviously no science may ignore the other one, but he's quite correct in establishing the sphere sovereignty of science over against the theoretical theologian. That's Kuiper did that. Uh, all right. uh, I would like to ask Dr. Newton a question. If he happens to know Dr. Bernard Rand's book on the Bible and science. That's a very well-known book in this country. Now, I don't say that his view is the same at all as the you get the impression that he wants to find an excuse for science, a Christian, to believe anything that any scientist says on the ground that the Bible only gives you religious teaching. Is it Ram? Bernard Ram. Bernard Ram. Don't I don't know. Uh, am I? I, I won't. I felt, I think that you probably know Ram's book much better than I, but I know it's the type of thing that they are representing in a neo-evangelical position and they tend to set over the religious meaning over against the general scientific data and so forth. That is a distinction which is right nearly in the camp of existentialism as one of the basic notions of existentialism and these people, the evangelicals, are just ripe for existentialism, and they're all beginning to fall into it if they haven't fallen in already. Uh, I am very leery of such things. I teach against such things constantly. It's a phenomenal numinal scheme. It is a historical scheme and all sorts of bad things. Now, the thing is, uh, I don't... If I had the... Uh, 
was an idea that what I think that the general tendencies of the cosmonic idea of philosophy are which are falling in that direction, and I agree with some of the difficulties that Dr. Young has about this mystical aspect and what actually sometimes is done with it, even by Doiver. I quite, I've been leery of that for the last 11 years, as I say. On the other hand, I think the major tendencies are in a different direction, and I certainly would not uh, hold to this view for one minute if I thought otherwise. I would fully agree with uh, say the scripture uh, to limit and to say that scripture only provides religious directives and that then in the sciences you can do what you want is again limiting religion to one area of life rather than this other conception that the heart is central, religion is central and ought to pervade all our activities, our eating, our drinking, our theorizing in all the sciences as well. So that quite concretely, as the, the illustration of Dijonetowicz uh, and say Prost in ethics uh, and other men have been working this out in specific uh, disciplines, that there you are just as much bound to the authority and directive of scripture in a very concrete way. Uh, not every portion of scripture will apply and be relevant in the same manner in the different sciences. Uh, for example, the geologist will, will listen with greater care and be interested in certain facets that seem to be directly related to what he's doing, but that's a secondary matter, it seems to me. But certainly he's not free from the scripture. Some people haven't spoken yet, and I think I should give preference to them. Fred? Well, all right, if you will pass. I, I have a question directly related. Jonathan A. Witt, as a matter of fact, well, let me begin with Reformed theology, has drawn a distinction between the original creative act of God and subsequent creation. Subsequent creative acts, a series of creative acts. Dalvin A. David does not have that. He has a creation which does not fall into time, and then an unfolding, but he has no creation in time. Now, does he get that from the from Genesis 1, or does he get it from a philosophical system? I have complete ignorance there. I have to refer to This position was shared by Dory Verit, Deemer and David. Uh, the idea is that God's creation is not in time, which is, I find St. Augustine also holds. And David holds that the entire creation, in some sense, was all, shall I say, at once. It is beyond our ken. It is something then which is God's quiet in which he brings everything into being. But then there is the unfolding of it. Now, this notion is on my waiting list. <laughs> it seems to me to be somewhat speculated. On the other hand, whenever anyone has talked to me about it and 
brought up in alternative position, I've at least been able to bring up enough difficulties in his position so that at least this didn't look as bad as it might at first sight. The idea is in the sense that everything, including the whole, the whole expanse of history, is included in some sense in this original creation and then unfolds. Uh, the, as we would say, the providence of God extends over all. God's creative uh, counsel is over all. Dory Barrett seems to think that the creative act of God has his, has his status. Now that's an idea that uh, is somewhat uh, new to me. I know these three men have held it. I know that it is characteristic of this position from way back from way back when Deemer was still alive, around 1936 and so forth. And uh, it's just, uh, I, I, I would hold that this is a particular theory. I would hold it held by men like this who want to be faithful to the scriptures and I'll listen to what they have to say. Uh, I don't teach it myself. All right, now Mr. Southwell, I think. And it's pretty one point, any more follow-up. I don't want to go back to... Uh, oh, all right. No, I think it's yours now. You better take your chance. Um, I'm having trouble with this distinction between, uh, let's say, the, uh, the uh, naive interpretation of Scripture and the theoretical exegesis. Um, I'm not clarification on the nature of that distinction. In other words, what kind? What kind is the difference? Um, it doesn't seem to me that, for example, we want to say the difference is a physical difference or not a psychological difference in the makeup of the, of the people performing this. Um, I guess the theologian sometimes does a naive interpretation of the scriptures. Um, and it comes out of the system of thought, so I would tend to think of it as a logical distinction, that, that a naive interpretation of the scripture and a theoretical exegesis would be a different logical type, such that if I attempt to predicate some term of both of them, I involve myself in a category mistake, something like, someone wandering on campus and saying, I see Nation Hall, I see the library, where is the seminary? I don't see the seminary. <laughs> and the, the, the one who has made this category mistake has attempted to predicate the term C of seminary in the same way he would predicate it of Nation Hall, library, so forth. Now, I... I can understand it. I can understand a difference in logical type by seeing what it is to make such a category mistake. Are there, are there terms that one would not predicate of both naive interpretation of scriptures and theoretical exegesis? Those two involve themselves in a category of like that. Can you give me such, such terms? Well, what terms would I not predicate of each of them? which terms are the long long logical types to the other. But if there is, if they are distinct logical types, there is that difference between them. We ought to be able to stipulate terms which cannot be predicated 
If we would look at this distinction within this philosophy itself, there would be no specific difference, simple logic specific difference in which by which you could distinguish. You would have to then acquaint be acquainted thoroughly with the transcendental method, with the idea of on slightings process, as Doiver calls it, or the uh, opening process, as I tried very de- generally to describe it. The idea, for one, that theoretical thinking in his way is always dependent upon naive thinking. It may never upset what naive thinking says. Neither. What thing? Well, as I say, you can't look at it simply that way. You would be looking at it modally, according to this philosophy, whereas you must look at it in terms of the whole modal scheme with opening process and so forth. In the naive experiencing, Doiver has the idea that you have logical thinking in a closed function. For one thing, you would have a certain randomness in it that is not characteristic of theoretical thinking. A woman on the telephone is thinking. Uh, she's thinking sometimes very fast. I know my wife thinks in the in the uh, A and P store like a computer. Uh, she's very expert at it, but it's not theoretical thinking. And uh, woman thinks very fast in the telephone, but there's no economy about it for the telephone bill either. And uh, the thing is, then the the uh, notion then would have to be, you'd have to, to see it then in terms of uh, a dependence of, of the theoretical and the pre-theoretical, that it may never up- upset it. It's just not so that the distinction then says, well, theory may do whatever it wants because our experience is on the naive level. That is turning things topsy-turvy as far as what uh, these people say. It's just the other way around, that naive thinking says thus and so and our naive experience is thus and so and therefore theory is not free. It must depend upon the naive. But uh, that demands a transcendental approach and uh, as I say, all I can answer to your thing is neither. You cannot then make this distinction according to some specific difference in terms of some generic unity. You must uh, follow along with the transcendental method and uh, take this transcendental method and either prove it as such or disprove it as such, even to approach this question. Uh, that's all I can say. Dr. Young, you want to add a yes, word to this? Yes, I'd like to add a little odd hominem contribution. Some of the members of the audience might not be aware that this uh, a matter of category distinctions and even the analogous uh, uh, example derived from Oxford uh, is uh, associated with uh, Professor uh, uh, Gilbert Ryle, the Wayne Fleet uh, professor of metaphysics who has devoted his life to the destruction of metaphysics, (laughs) the man who wrote a book on the concept of mind to prove there is no such thing as mind. 
you reread uh, Ryle's concept of mind, also in Dilemmas, you will find a remarkable similarity in a certain formal respect, at any rate, between Ryle and Doyavert on this matter of the theoretical and the naive. Only just talk about ordinary language and theory instead of uh, uh, theoretical thought and naive experience, and you'll you'll find Ryle drawing uh, drawing distinctions in a pretty sharp and clear-cut way between ordinary language and theoretical language. Uh, so you don't have to um, you don't have to go the hard way of mastering the transcendental method. Just a little ordinary language analysis will do the trick. Uh, I'm afraid you wouldn't do justice to the cosmic idea of philosophy, however. We're going to be in the same house tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go. <laughs> Define the word religion because some people think religion and theology is the same thing. Uh, define the difference between religion and theology and then the uh, relationship of philosophy as a science to theology. Uh, who is that? To whom did you direct it? Well, Dr. Nixon to define religion over against theology and then the Religion, as I understand it, in terms of this philosophy, which I hold in the way any philosophy ought to be held, my whole thing, is a service with one's whole heart of God in every sphere of life. Theology, then, would be one activity among others that people do. Theology would be a specifically oriented, analytically oriented path of a theoretical nature, which is then directed toward understanding something. Now, Theology in a broader sense, however, is simply saying what God has said to us in his word and our confession. And but I I've defined it earlier, we've been using it in a theoretical sense mostly, but uh, this this whole position demands that we use theology in the dual sense of the simple, down to earth, naive, conceptual, confessing saying what God says in his word, confessing that he is the creator and so forth. But by uh, I struggled for years. I went around almost in the days for months on end trying to understand what creation was and I was in university and I finally found out I couldn't understand what it was. I was trying to grasp it theoretically. I could not, but I confess with my whole heart that God is created. It's theology in one sense but I can't understand theologically in that other sense exactly conceptually now. In the theoretical concept, I can't get a concept of creation because creation then dominates every concept I can use. I don't know if I have too terrible much to add. I might say that uh, 
If you want a further discussion or read something more, read Dr. Scrotenboer's there's a publication on the nature of religion. Uh, that was not an advertisement, but another answer to your question. If you follow this line of thinking, if you can accept this basic point that whatever else may be involved in theorizing, as Dr. Newton has been indicated, some more of the other things, more technically, philosophically, uh, which needs to be done, if, if one can agree to this point that it involves abstracting from this concrete total knowledge that we have of things, also the scripture is, means abstracting from that, uh, then the relation between philosophy and theology within the Dorian perspective presents no particular problem because then it is quite clear that uh, theology is limited to a specific aspect of creation, of reality, and that it is only philosophy that directs itself to the total spectrum and relation of these, and that as a special, specific, limited science, theology could not establish its own position in this totality by itself, but that, that would be a philosophical question, philosophy of theology. However, this relation, as it is formulated by Dewey, depends on this view of this distinction between uh, total, integral knowledge of things and this abstracting of certain aspects. Uh, if there had been time, I would have very much liked you today to talk a bit further on what Dewey, I think, means by this modal aspect of faith, and I would like to, in, to discuss with Dr. Young on that too, because I think some more meaningful things can be said about that, uh, but I think that would get us too far afield and would take too long to get further into. We've, we've gotten just about as much mileage out of our panelists as we can expect today. I, I think I'll let you have one short question and I have a short answer to that. And then if someone wants to say something, he may still from this side. I was just, uh, on the basis of our whole discussion today, to this nature of the Gagenstein relation, it seems that it would be helpful if possibly you could uh, briefly uh, for all of us, unfold a, a modal analysis, which seems to be at, at the part of the core of, of telling us how this differs from naive experience. In other words, if you would, uh, I know Dr. Nussman has done this in class for us, show us what a modal analysis is, shows us what an analogy is in a particular sphere of life, for instance, biology is life, and then what is ethical life, what is juridical life, if you have one in your mind, that might help us as to what is involved in this Gagenstein relationship, as opposed to pre-theoretical thought. A very brief answer to that. Uh, not very nice, but not an advertisement. But I think I've tried to do just that, say, for the theory concerning the educational ministry of the church. 
what is peculiar about the church's education? And to that man's answer, uh, question two, concretely I can indicate that in that manner. Try to work with it as a tool there, and there you can see it brought out and specified and spelled out in detail. Yes, uh, did someone here want to say something yet? Otherwise, I think we should uh, express our appreciation to these men. Did you want to say something about? I right. think it's. I think you're right. I think uh, we've gotten our mileage. <laughs> I think we got our mileage. suggested this afternoon that I try to sum up uh, the discussion <laughs> at the end. Well, I'm not going to try to do that, but I thought that I would give you my impressions of it, of what has been said. And since I left the, the congregation, I have learned more about the inability of most ministers to uh, to provide adequate terminal facilities to their own talks. And so we'll be out of here in just a few minutes. But let me just say what I put down. I think that we can all agree that we had very provocative lectures today. I still have about seven or eight questions here which we did not put to the men just because we wanted to have more of a live give and take from you directly from the floor. There's been an intense interest throughout. I was interested to notice how the men in the back were straining to hear every word. I looked at Bob and Dolk and Don McClure and they were with us all the time, even though they were way back there. And I think you will all agree with me that uh, we have witnessed here today, this afternoon and this evening, that we share a basic common view. And it was on that basis that we engaged in this vigorous discussion. I don't know when we've had a day like this in Westminster. Maybe it's been a number of months. I hope that this will be something that in the future we'll say, let's have another one and let's have it just as good as this one. But since we have not differed in our basic commitment to Christ, we could disagree, as we did, without feeling at any time that the ground was shaking under our feet. Nobody had to feel today like the man who wrote Psalm 73 did. My, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. Because we knew that only foundation Jesus Christ and his word. Uh, the, the discourses and the discussions have taught us, I think, that we have to distinguish carefully between the word of God and our words about the word of God. We have to distinguish between what we in our confessions say that we Christians believe and what our theologians do when they propose solutions to problems which may be only partly settled even in their minds. And then if you say, what have we, what have we learned today? 
Well, it's easier to say I, at this point what theology is not than to say what it is. And perhaps we'll have to just follow what Thomas Aquinas called the via negativa. <laughs> theology is not faith, although both theology and faith are human actions, but theology is a science, and faith is not. Faith is God's gift, theology is man's task. Theology is not religion, which I understand to be our covenantal living coram deo in all of its facets, all of the time. Theology is not the same as church activity, such as its history, its polity, its message, its past, but the life of the church is much broader than theology. But theology now is concerned with faith, and some call theology the science of that faith aspect of human experience. And I think all would agree that theology deals with the truths of Scripture, the truths which we believe, the fides quae, it has to do with our act of faith, but the question remains, now what is the precise relation between faith and theology? Theology is concerned with religion, for it deals with that full covenantal living, but other sciences and other parts of life also deal with that living before the face of God. Not only is religion, not only is theology a, a religious exercise, but all sciences are that. Religion is far greater than theology. There's no full agreement among us as to the definition and the validity of the definition of the theoretical as distinct from the non-theoretical. We'll have to leave it at that, for tonight that is, but we can't leave it there. There's no full agreement among us in regard to the nature of the Word of God, even while we all want to bow and do bow before its full authority over us. There's no full agreement either on the value and the function of reason, although all recognize that it's there and no one wants to be unreasonable or irrational. But there's an openness and a correctability as to the ideas that have been set forth regarding the cosmonomic philosophy today. And this, with what it has to say to us about the relation of philosophy and theology, and theology in our faith, and theology in the church, and theology in the Word of God, has to be judged, not for having closed the discussion, but for advancing the discussion, and should be evaluated, I would suggest, Christian friends, by its faithfulness to the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God written.